0: Well, welcome everyone to our fourth week in our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, the title of the series behind me. I'll explain briefly where we've been, and then we will pick up on on page four. Before we get into the lesson, let me uh, remind you of one thing that's coming up in the next couple of weeks, and that is our Mud Hens game. So if you haven't purchased your tickets for that, and if you don't have the money, that's okay. We just need to get you registered and then we'll hold you accountable for the money later. But we want to know that you're coming. We've already purchased an allotment of 100 tickets, so we want to know how to divvy those out. So do that at the uh, registration table, the information center, and preferably before you, before you leave, and that will be of help to us. The game is on the 26th, Friday, the 26th, at the 7 o'clock at the 5th, uh, fifth, 3rd fifth, Stadium in uh, Toledo. I think this is our fifth or sixth year in a row, at least, of doing that. We always have a great time. So if you can make it, we'd love to have you uh, put your name in at the uh, registration table. This series, The Pursuit of Happiness, falling in the time frame that it does in the summer, is a series that is primarily designed for the, the folks in our church or folks who are already familiar with uh, christ the bible and and want to follow him and i say that because normally this hour called the discovering god hour is designed to address folks who have not come to Christ and who want to discover what that's about and how to do that and so we choose topics that are centered around that hopefully at the same time helpful to our own people but designed to speak to people who have not come to god through through jesus christ we do several series throughout the year during this hour that are designed for that but in the in the summer uh, we have a lull because of vacations and all of that in fact I say for church purposes really and programming purposes the summer is useless and so we don't do an outreach series during this hour like we normally do uh, in the fall January and then just after after Easter and so for those of you that are here and who wonder about this whole Christianity thing and are exploring that we're delighted that you're here if some of what we say is is new to you or foreign to you then please forgive that pick up what you can and please know that i'm available to speak to you anytime to try to address any questions that uh, might come up as you listen to what we're doing but this series pursuit of happiness is designed to challenge those of us who profess the name of christ profess to be followers of christ in how it is that we align our lives around the mission that He has given to each of the, us. And so that's what we're pursuing and have been for three weeks now. This is our fourth, our fourth week. And in our, in our first few weeks, we've looked at, if you were to look on page two in your notes, um, we, we asked the question, can Jesus, really, can Jesus make me uh, happy? And we tried to answer that in the affirmative from Scripture. And if you're a follower of Christ, hopefully you believe that's the case, that if I do the will of God, if I follow what God has said for my life, that that's indeed the deepest satisfaction and deepest contentment and deepest happiness that a human being can know. But unfortunately, because we still, even as followers of Jesus, have the vestiges of the sin nature, the Bible calls it, then we are still drawn away by the allurements of the world, and sometimes we wonder whether or not indeed Jesus can, in fact, make us happy. The Bible's explicit that he can. Romans 12 and and verse 2. Do not be conformed any longer to the the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then you will test and approve what God's will is. God's good and pleasing and perfect will. God's will, doing what God wants, often as opposed to what I want initially, is good and and it's pleasant, pleasing, and it's perfect. And so God claims, if you follow me, if you do what I tell you to do, then indeed you can can be happy. And then we asked on page, page three, the question, well, do I like what Jesus likes? And the reason that that question needs to be answered is because for many of us, we pursue the Christian life simply with, as I said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus sprinkled on top. We pursue the same agenda that we had when we came to Jesus. But now we baptize it in Jesus' talk. And so instead of a realignment, a radical realignment of my priorities and my allegiances around the mission to which Jesus has called me, I simply add Jesus to the agenda that I already have. And we need to then ask this question, does Jesus like what I like? Or more important, am I, do I like what he likes? Whose agenda is being placed on top of whose? And it should not be us simply placing, sprinkling Jesus on top of what we've already decided to do, but rather reordering our lives because He is Lord. He has told us what's important, what He wants us to use our time and talent and treasure pursuing. And then we saw at the bottom of page 3 last week, there'll be a test. He's going to have us give an account for what we did with that did I reorient my life around his agenda and use what he has given me for the purposes for which he gave it and that includes how I allot my time that includes how I spend my treasure and that includes how I use my talents now I should reword that I say it includes how I spend my time but really whose time is it? it includes how I spend his time and it includes how I spend his treasure and it includes how I use his talents, talents that he has gifted me with. And we saw last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, bottom of page 3, that there will be a test. That each of us will give an account with regard to what we did with what he has given. Now on page, page 4. Continuing part section 1 of this two-part series, looking at the source of happiness as coming from, from God and following his agenda rather than our own. And then when we get to page six, we will look at section two, which is the practice of, of happiness. But we ask the question at the top of page four, but doesn't it all just work out in the end? And in order to give you a flavor for why it is, I want us to answer that question as it relates to the pursuit of happiness. Follow me as best you can. You all remember Jesus' final instructions to his first followers before he ascended back to the Father and he said in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 here's what I want you to do go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you and then he ascends back to the Father these are his final instructions here's what I'm leaving you all here to do now The way you define that mission is in turn going to affect the way you pursue your life for Christ. The way you define that mission is going to, in turn, determine the way you pursue your mission for Christ, your life for Christ. Now, here's what I mean by the way you define that mission. Over the years, I am convinced, in fact, I've seen it, I've read it. Over and over again, Christians have misdefined what those final instructions are that Jesus gave to his church. We think what that means is this. When he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, we think it means this. Make converts. Conversions, that is, give people the gospel, have them pray a prayer to receive Jesus as Savior so that now they're going to heaven. That's the mission that Jesus gave us, we think. But as it turns out, that's not. That's not the mission. It's part of the mission. It's integral to the mission, but it's not the mission. The mission that Jesus gave is not simply to secure professions of faith. And there are whole denominations, there are whole schools, there are whole movements, periodicals. I could name them for you that have been devoted for decades to that false proposition that what the Great Commission is about is securing professions of faith. Soul winning. Anybody ever heard that term before? Winning souls. Get out there and win souls. Have people pray the prayer. Now you're going to heaven because you prayed the prayer. But you notice that Jesus did not say, make converts, secure professions. He said make what? Disciples. Make disciples. And that making of disciples, there's only in that, in that, in that verse, in those final, that, those final instructions from Jesus to his first followers, it looks like there are several commands there. In Greek, there's one command. One. Make disciples. And then the rest of it is how you make disciples. Make disciples by doing this. Baptize them teaching them to observe what? Everything that I've commanded. Now, why do I bring that up? Why, what does that have to do with the pursuit of happiness? I'm convinced that many Christians have come into the Christian life with an understanding that the only thing that really matters is that I prayed the prayer to secure a place in heaven. Not only is the person who gave that to you, perhaps, convinced that that's their mission, secure your profession of faith, but you've become convinced that the one thing that matters is that when I die, whenever that'll be, I'm going to heaven. We think the mission is getting people to go to heaven, and we think our personal mission is, first of all, to make sure that we're going to heaven, and then try to help other people do that. And Jesus says, you know, there's stuff I want you to do before you get to heaven. There's a mission for you to be a disciple, a follower, a learner of me, having been taught to observe everything that I have commanded. Inherent in that truncated approach to the mission, incomplete approach to the mission, is the idea that God's purpose for people on earth is to secure their salvation. That truncated, false, incomplete notion of the mission has underlying it the false notion that God's purpose is the salvation of people on earth. You say, you know, I think this is the first time I've ever heard you speak heresy, Brown. Because for some of you, that may sound heretical, that God's purpose, God's purpose is not to see people go to heaven. Well, if it's not that, then what is it? And I just ask you to think about that for a moment. What is God's purpose? What's God's purpose now? What was it in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament? What will it be in the future? What is God's purpose now and at all times? It's always been the same. Isn't it His glory? And when people come to Christ, that's one of the ways, a very important way, that He's glorified. To put it another way, professions or evangelism is an extremely important thing. The rest of the mission cannot be done without it. It's indispensable, it's integral to the mission, but it's not the sum total of the mission that Christ has given. And it's certainly not the purpose that God has for people on earth is simply to see folks pray a prayer so that they know they're going to heaven. His purpose is and always has been His glory. And so, if we don't get that straight, what happens is this. People think that their purpose in life has been fulfilled. If they have prayed the prayer and know they're going to heaven... And when they run into folks out in the highways and byways, they tell them how to pray the prayer. And if I've done that, I'm pursuing the mission. It's incomplete because God's goal is not simply salvation. It is not simply heaven. To put it another way, it is not simply to escape hell. That whole view of evangelism, salvation, the Great Commission, sees the message of the good news of the gospel as a fire escape for people. We give it good. You're not going to go to hell. Now you know you're going to heaven. Now you can live your life, live it morally, but live your life as you were and sprinkle some Jesus on top. Wrong mission, wrong purpose, wrong pursuit. when we give people the gospel which we must and we tell them when you respond to this the gift of God is Romans 6 23 the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ we say he gives you eternal life as a gift and so we think with this truncated gospel and this false purpose we think that that means okay now I've got eternal life which means I've got a ticket to heaven you all heard me say last week that many of us want Jesus as our ticket to heaven, but not our map through life. But Jesus says, No, I'm not just your ticket to heaven, just getting your ticket punched. I'm your map through life. And when we say he gives us eternal life, we think that means, eternal life means, when I die, I'll be with Jesus. Well, it does mean that, but it means more than that, doesn't it? When does eternal life start? I mean, we know when it ends, never. But when do you get it? Do you get it after you die? You get it now. You have now eternal life. And eternal life is not just quantity or length. But eternal life in Scripture is not just quantity, but it is a quality of life. It's a different kind of life. It's the life of Jesus now given to the individual at the point of conversion that they begin living from that point on and will go indeed into eternity future. So it's not pray the prayer, I'm not going to, I'm now I'm not going to hell. Live as you were, at ease. Sprinkle some Jesus on top. Show up at church every now and then, especially if you have kids because they need to know some of that Jesus stuff. But don't let it radically alter the way you order your life. And it's all based on this false notion of what our mission is. It's not secure professions. It is not simply escape hell. It's not fire insurance. It is to bring glory to God by being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means now falling, putting my life under his mastery, his lordship, reordering my life according to his agenda. Not mine. So I asked the question then on page 4. But doesn't it all just sort of work out? Doesn't everything work together for good? You see the last verse I have listed in the middle of the page, Romans 8.28? All things work together for good. So why, why do I have to be intentionally engaged in thinking about and reordering stuff When, in fact, it's all going to work out anyway. It's all good. God works it out for him. So, how does that mentality affect your intentional or failure to intentionally pursue your happiness through the mission that Jesus has given? Hear this. How you see your purpose will affect whether you engage in the pursuit. How you see your purpose will affect whether you engage in the pursuit. How you see your purpose will affect whether you even see the need to engage in the pursuit. Your purpose is to bring glory to God as a radically changed disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ through the mission that he's given to us. But if you have this keserah, but it all works out, you will not intentionally pursue that purpose. So how do these passages, passages like this, fit into the notion that many people, even if unspoken, pursue their Christian life? Namely that, it all works out in the end. So it really doesn't matter much how I or whether I intentionally pursue it. Well, I ask on page four, it's all good, right? Well, let's think about that for a bit. It is true that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose, as we have listed there, Romans eight twenty-eight. But you haven't pleased God <laughs> simply by being used as one of the means that He has garnered to accomplish His purpose. You haven't pleased God simply by being one of those means, have you? Look at the verse I have for you at the top. You intended to harm me. But God meant this for good. You see that's to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20? You all know that story? Started way back in Genesis chapter 37. It's about Joseph and his, his brothers. And how his brothers sold him into slavery, really left him for dead. Assumed he had died. He was long out of their hair. And God providentially works through circumstances to bring a famine to the land such that the brothers have to go to Egypt where, in the fullness of time, in God's providence, Joseph has risen to prominence in, in Pharaoh's household. He's working one of, for one of Pharaoh's chief assistants, a fellow named Potiphar. And when they come for relief from the famine, who is it that's going to be distributing this food? None other than the long-lost brother. And Genesis, the book ends in chapter 50. And that whole story concludes with that famous statement. Joseph saying to his brothers, you intended to harm me. But God meant it for good. Now, do you all suppose that Joseph's brothers had a party? Celebrating the fact that they were used as God's instruments to bring Moses and to bring Joseph into prominence in Egypt and all of this has worked out for good all because of us we pursued our selfish agenda yea, sinful agenda lo and behold God worked it out to his glory and for the good of his people the saving of many souls as a matter of fact is what Joseph says it all worked out therefore what we did must be pleasing to God. Well, we're laughing because, of course, nothing could be further from the truth, right? See, because here's the thing. When we say it all works out, and God does in His providence, in His sovereign providence, He moves all the chess pieces to work it out exactly as He has planned. We then want to look back and take credit for the outcome. Even when we have not intentionally pursued that glory and that good. God still sovereignly accomplishes it despite our disobedience. But you don't get any credit. God when 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 Romans 8:28 says God works all things together. When it says all things, it really means all things. Disobedience, sin, everything. He uses it all. But the people who are used in that process don't get credit for pleasing God, right? Do you remember in the Old Testament that God used a donkey to speak to his prophet? Remember that? Does the donkey get credit? The truth is, God's going to use you. The question, hear this, the question is, is are you going to be intentionally used to please God? God used Joseph's brothers, God's going to use you and everybody else. The question is, are you going to be intentionally used by God to please Him with your life in the pursuit of His mission? You have other examples of that I have for you on page 4. Isaiah 53. It was the Lord's will to crush the one who would come, the man of sorrows, Jesus, and cause Him to suffer. So here you have a prediction hundreds of years before it happens that God is going to send the Messiah. And it is the Lord's will, it is His plan for this to happen. He is going to crush Him, He is going to die for the sins of many. It's God's will that this happens and God uses in orchestrating that whole plan a whole cast of characters. Including people like Herod and Pontius Pilate. And in fact, notice Acts chapter 2. Jesus was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge to wicked men who put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Notice what they are called. (laughs) They're not called by these good guys. Because they played a vital role in the drama of redemption, they all get credited for doing that. No, they're still wicked guys, even though God's working it all out. And in fact, some of them are named in Acts chapter 4. Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. What did they do? They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Herod and Pontius Pilate don't get credit for pleasing God in the pursuit of his mission. Do that. And neither do you. Unless you intentionally pursue with your life pleasing God in the pursuit of the mission to which he has called you. Taking comfort in the fact that it all works out in the end does not negate what we saw last week. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for how we used what God has given us. Now this truth should put to rest a bunch of things one of them I'll just give you one other and then we'll move on is the pragmatism with which many Christians pursue church life here's what I mean by pragmatism, you know what I mean by that the ends justify the means pragmatism it's working so it must be okay pragmatism is deadly to biblical ministry, deadly Because God doesn't want us to just do what works. God wants us to do what brings glory to Him. And what works in the world's definition may not bring glory to God. What gets a crowd into your church may look like it works, but it may not bring glory to God. Did you know that? But we have this pragmatic streak. And we say things like, well, pastor, you shouldn't criticize the cussing pastor out in Seattle like you did in the first hour. I didn't mention his name, but I could. You shouldn't criticize those guys because God's using him. God used a donkey, didn't he? God uses everybody. The question isn't, is God going to use him? God's going to use everybody. You know, that really doesn't help. Pragmatism does not help. Because our pursuit is the glory of God, intentionally seeking to please Him in the mission to which He has called us. God will use you. The question is, will you be intentionally used of God to bring glory to Him? Doesn't it all work out in the end? Yeah. The question is, where will you be in God's eyes in terms of pleasing Him when you stand before Him? Now, page 4 again. Related to this, doesn't it all work out in the end? What kind of effort should I expend in the mission? The less I work, the more credit God gets, right? Right? You say, does anybody really say that? Well, not exactly in those words. But that's the sentiment. There's, within evangelical Christianity, there has been for well over 100 years, a let go and let God mentality. Have you ever heard that? Let go and let God. Now, there's a sense in which that can be said and pursued properly. If you're taking the steering wheel of your life and you're pursuing your own agenda, then let go of the steering wheel, okay? But but God does not anywhere in Scripture teach that you're to be a passive passenger on the the vehicle that's taking you through through life. Rather, you're you're to be an, an active participant in that. And so contrary to what many people think and sometimes well-meaning because I've heard this from very well-meaning people let go and let God God did not call us to a passive life to let the Holy Spirit inflate the balloon that is you and then when some of the Holy Spirit leaks out you need to go to a conference and they get pumped up again I'm telling you this is the way many people pursue the Christian life I need a new conference, I need a new book I need to go to camp I need to get right. I get my balloon inflated. Over time, it deflates. I need to surrender it all to Jesus and let Him work in my life. But God calls us to act. Now here, this active participation with Him. Notice the passage that I have listed for you there. Colossians chapter 1. I labor... struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. The word, that is, the word that's translated struggling is, here's the Greek word, agonizo. Now what, what English word do we get from that? I agonize. I, I labor, I work, and it's not just labor, it is hard labor. Active labor, But notice, it's his, it's his power working in me. So it is not God calling me to passivity. He is calling me to actively pursue the mission to which He has called me with my life, using the gifts and the time and the treasure that He's afforded me. But He still gets the credit because, as Paul says here, it is Him working in me. So, this is what Paul describes here in Colossians 1.29 is a fancy term called synergy or synergism. S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y, synergy. Synergism says that it is us participating with God in our lives to pursue his mission apart from him working in us nothing gets done apart from you jesus john fifteen five i'm the vine you are the branches jesus says apart from me you can do nothing right? that's all true but he's called us to be active participants in that struggling agonizing synergy working with the energy that he provides his energy working in me participating with him in the work that he's accomplishing in my life and through me in the mission. Now why is that so important to understand? The next page. Because this false notion of let go and let God, for many people, comes from this misunderstanding at the top of page 5. If I didn't work for my justification, then I shouldn't work for my sanctification either, right? Turns out to be wrong. So stay with me. We've got 12 minutes. I didn't work for my justification, so I shouldn't work for my sanctification. First, we need to make sure we know what those two things are. Justification sanctification. So what is justification? Justification is... The legal declaration that you have been declared innocent before God. The legal declaration of you being innocent before God. So God the judge declares you innocent before him. Even though you're really guilty. Why does he do that? Because Jesus took your place. And so the righteousness of Jesus is applied to you. The death of Jesus is applied to you, and as a result, God declares you to be right, just before Him. Now, that's something God does, you don't do. And that is not synergistic, that is, and this is my last big term, honest. That's monergistic. You know what what does mono mean? One. Synergy is, is together. Monergism is, is one. This is one. The energy, the work, the power of one. Justification is monergistic. It's God doing it, God declaring it. Not you. No work that you can do for justification. The good news of the gospel is that we are justified by faith alone, right? By believing rather than working. That's all true. And it would be heresy and it would be contrary to the gospel to say anything else. Justification is God's work and God's work alone. But sanctification is God working in us. It's not God's work outside of us as is justification declaring you righteous before his bar of justice. This is now not God working outside of you, it's God working in you. And you struggling with all his energy, as Paul says. Justification is monergistic. Sanctification. The continual process of being made holy, being set apart, becoming like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. That's synergistic. That's you working with God. And you see this in Scripture. Notice the passages I have listed for you. We are God's workmanship. And we were created in Christ Jesus. Now let me just, just stop here. Now notice this. We are God Whose workmanship? God's. Who's the one that's ultimately going to produce all this? God. Who's going to get the glory? God. But the question is, do I actively participate rather than passively wait and let go and let God? And this passage and many others teach that I actively participate with God in the process of sanctification, being made holy, being made like Jesus. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So far it's all monergistic. It's all God's work. But then notice we're created to do good works. His purpose is in working His will in us that we actively do things that He has commanded us to do to bring glory to Him. So you have both of those. You have God's monergistic work where His workmanship were created in Christ Jesus but it is all for the purpose of us doing, obeying, carrying out what He has said and the energy He provides. When it says we are God's workmanship, the Greek word translated workmanship Poema, poem. Sometimes some versions translate it tapestry, craftsmanship, work of art. We are God's tapestry, God's poem, God's work of art. He is at work actively in all of our circumstances, weaving the tapestry to make us like Jesus. What a beautiful thing. That includes all the junk in your background. All the struggles you have. We are God's work of art. But created to do. Further. Philippians chapter 2. It is God who works. It is God who works in you. And then notice. To will and to act now who is willing and acting (laughs) we're willing and acting because god is working in us to will to choose volitionally to will and then to act in our behavior according to his good purpose not passive god is working in us It's his energy Apart from him, we can do nothing. But it's him working in us to actively obey him and pursue the mission he's placed us here to accomplish. His good purpose. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that I have listed there for you. Paul, who's written all these these verses. Ephesians 2, Philippians 2. Now, 1 Thessalonians 1. He's the one who wrote Romans 8. He puts all this together As to how it is now, we can pray. If I'm somebody who's involved in this synergistic process with Almighty God, I can now pray in His will. I can now pray, Lord, accomplish, we ask you, accomplish this. Why? Because now the things that I'm praying are the things that please Him are the things that he is working in me to produce through me for his glory, not mine. And so in First Thessalonians, excuse me, Second Thessalonians one, notice what, what Paul says, we pray for you. That our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every purpose of his. I right, I misread that on purpose. You guys see what that says? That is an incredible thing. (laughs) That He may fulfill every good purpose of yours. This Paul who is saying that, this is the synergistic process of God working in you and you working with God actively in pursuit of pleasing Him, says when your life is like that, We pray then that He'll fulfill every good purpose of yours. Why? Because your purposes have now been realigned. They're no longer your selfish agenda. We pray that now you, having cooperated with God synergistically and becoming like Jesus, pursuing the mission to which He has called us, that He'll pursue your good purposes. And every act prompted by by your faith. That's how closely Paul assumes we should be working with God in order to pursue His glory through the mission to which He has called us. It's God's mission. It's what the Lord Jesus Christ has called us out of the world to accomplish. We realign our values and our priorities and our allegiances radically reorienting our lives to pursue what he has called us to. And when we do that, his purposes and our purposes look very much the same. Thanks be to God. But only when we do that do they look very much the same. Now, I said at the beginning that many Christians believe that the Christian life is simply about fire insurance. Am I going to heaven? Do I have my ticket punched? Church is a good thing. They're fairly nice people. I should show up at church. Here we are. But the question isn't, do I show up at church? The question is, am I giving my life to the mission that Jesus has called me to, to intentionally bring glory to Him in the mission? Now, friends, let's be honest. We're going to pray. We're done in two minutes, but let's just have some moments of honesty here then. Would you be honest with yourself and evaluate whether or not you're pursuing your agenda or his? Whether or not, instead of aligning yourself with the mission that Jesus has called us to, you're asking Jesus to baptize your mission. One way you can gauge that is look at this past week and just think about how you spent the time that he gave to you. What was it spent pursuing? Stuff that really matters? His mission? Here's another way. When when somebody says when people ask you, where do you go to church? We talked about this at our community group last week. Where do you go to church? And you say something like, I attend, you know, with those people. I attend community Baptist. We meet in a high school. That's fine, you have to say it somehow. I'm not faulting that language specifically. Except when it betrays an understanding of church that says, it's something I attend, rather than the mission I pursue. You see, for too many of us, church is something we attend. But the church has been called, the church, us, has been called together to pursue the mission. How do you think about that? How do you think about this gathering of people? This church? Is it a place you attend and then leave because that's the cool thing to do? My kids like the program. We've got Sunday school. Or is it because this is where I learn to pursue the mission? And this is where I engage in relationship with the people that God has called me together with to pursue the mission. That's what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is people called out of the world and to God to pursue His mission rather than theirs, radically reorienting their lives around His agenda not their own, and doing so in the new community that God calls the church. We're going to pray. I like when the machines go off. It gets really quiet. But it is a very convicting moment. For us to think about, do I just attend church? And then with the rest of my time, I pursue my own agenda. We're going to continue over the next few weeks looking at the pursuit of happiness. Next week, section two, the practice of happiness. How that practically then works out in our lives. We're going to bow and we're going to ask the Lord to help us this week to think about how we reorder our lives around his mission, actively participating with him to bring pleasure, to please him with our lives in his mission. All right? Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for your church. It's your church. Your church is the people that you have called out. Literally, it's a called out group of people, called out of the world, called unto our God, called to the Lordship of Jesus, called to reorder our lives under his mastery, gladly doing so because we believe that this is the God who can fulfill our deepest desires, that this is what life was meant to be. And so we'll put away the lesser things of the world and we will prioritize the things to which you have called. You have called us together in community, together to do this. To in relationship with one another, encouraging and being encouraged, learning and going on in, in growth in grace, we become more like Jesus. We aid each other in doing that as together, shoulder to shoulder, we use our gifts and abilities to pursue the mission. Lord, I pray that this has been convicting for other brothers and sisters as it has been for me. To think about how I use what you have been given and how I, how I seek to pursue the mission that you have called us to. Help us to be honest about the fact that so many of us as American Christians have replaced your mission and agenda with our own. And that church has become something that we attend. Something that we go to rather than an integral part of the mission that we pursue with our lives. I pray you'll help us this week to think about how we reorder our lives, reorder our values and our allegiances, and how we spend our money, and how we spend our time, and how we use the gifts or fail to use the gifts that you have given us. Grant us safety, Lord God, and bring us back next Lord's Day to learn at your feet yet again. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.